Good evening again. A couple of years ago, I was assigned the title, The Dangers of an Independent Spirit, to preach at a uh, congregation out of state. And it was a good assignment for me to have to think through and work through. And one of the first questions I had as I faced that was, well, what is independence? Independence can have the idea of disconnected, and it generally carries the idea of being sustainable while disconnected. So to put it another way, independent doesn't just mean free of something or of other things, but there's generally at least an implication that it is, it's free of other things and it's also fine and maybe even better because of it. <clears throat> and so as I thought about that assignment and an independent spirit, I realized that it really came down to an attitude and a mindset, just a, a, a life view, a, a worldview that either embraced, that, that either preferred or embraced independence. Which, of course, led to the question of what's so dangerous about that. After all, it was just presented to me as fact that there were dangers in an independent spirit. Um, but the people who gave me the assignment didn't tell me what the dangers were or why it was dangerous. So it was good for me to have to, have to dig into it. So what really is the danger there? What was concerning them? And then I realized maybe I was ahead of myself already. Um, was independence a bad thing in general, or was I just supposed to be thinking about the church and how we relate in a, in a church context as I study? I'm going to make two pretty broad statements here to start. One, an independent spirit is wrong and not acceptable for the Christian. And two, it's not just about the church. Now, we will discuss... Um, dangers of that independent life view and mindset as it relates to the church after a bit. But first, well, well, let me just explain why an independent spirit is wrong and not acceptable for the Christian. Independent means more than just what I was defining earlier. There is an aspect of being apart, but independent goes farther than that to being alone. So independence doesn't just stop with separation, just being apart. It goes farther to isolation. Not just separation, but isolation. Not just being apart, but to being alone. God's people have always been called apart. God has, through the, through the years and through the generations, called his people to be apart. But he's, it's, it's never been the will of God for his people to be alone. I said a moment ago, this is not just about the church. We'll talk about how it relates to the church in a bit. But as I considered this topic, I ended up settling into three sections. Um, independence from God, independence from his body, the church, and just independence at a, at a human or a societal level. 
So this evening, we're going to look at three areas in relation to independence, God, the church, and humanity. Starting with God, the most dangerous thing about tomorrow is the temptation to forget God, to live and talk and act as if God doesn't exist. We know God exists, but we lose track of him, sometimes for minutes, sometimes for hours, maybe sometimes for a day or even days. Maybe that stretches into weeks sometimes. The Bible and history shows people losing track of God for generations even. In today's culture, our relationship with God is like the world's relationship. I think of how, how we relate to um, we relate to either uh, media and, and a lot of our connections and the information we have and a lot of the things we follow, um, a lot of the things that interest us. It tends to be where those relationships are something we, we check every so often. Um, some, there, there's maybe someone we check in with occasionally. And sometimes we treat God that way. Instead of, he, instead of him being a constant presence and connection for us, God sometimes is just um, our, oh, it sounds so sacrilegious to say, our buddy over there who, who we just check in with occasionally. Um, but sometimes the way we live, the way, the way our minds function in the day-to-day -day grind of life, we almost just have this sense of we're glad God's there when we have time, but maybe he's not all that relevant to what I'm doing today or right now. Um, I'm at home working on a project and well, God's not all that relevant to, to this right now. And so he's just not really, I'm just not really connected to him because why would I need to be? Everything's going fine. How can we, as redeemed men and women, forget an all-knowing and all-powerful God? For many of us, life feels pretty safe, fairly stable, kind of predictable. For the most part, our days don't feel that fragile or desperate. Jesus said, when someone's needy, they know to look for help. In Mark 2, verse 17, Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And for the most part, we go through life not really feeling that sick. And so we don't really think about our connection and our need for God. Predictable days with predictable outcomes and predictable consequences can numb us to that power of God and who he is. God's power is, is underpinning all of our tasks and all of our results. There's nothing good in this life, in this world, that doesn't come ultimately out of God's power. And yet, the predictability or the... the Sometimes I think the, the reason Christianity has had such an unparalleled season of freedom to worship is because the general atmosphere of, of success and a lack of pushback has done as much or more to drive a wedge between God and man as persecution would. Um, it won't always be that way. But we eat the next meal, we won't be hungry for a few hours. We do the laundry, we'll have clean clothes for a couple days. Um, we generate and submit that report on time, the boss signs the, the paycheck. Uh, we pay our bills and the lights and cables stay on for another month. We 
eat reasonably well, we exercise some, and we generally feel pretty healthy. So why, what would drive us to pray about food or laundry or another deadline at work? If we're used to the system, we're used to the results-based life that we have. I do this action, I get this result. Most of us are prompted to pray when we don't know what's coming. We pray when someone we love is sick and we don't know what's wrong. We pray when things aren't going well at work and, and staffing cuts are coming soon and, mm, oh well, suddenly we start praying a lot more than when it's just the daily grind of going to work and getting your tasks done. We pray when the car breaks down and blows up our monthly budget. We pray when chores pile up and overwhelm us at home. We pray when we feel fragile and desperate. We run to God when we feel helpless or confused or, or, or just out of control. That's why we can so easily forget God in our daily routines, because we can forget just how fragile and desperate and dependent we are all the time for everything. I'm dependent on God for everything, but I can fool myself into thinking that because I got up and went to work Monday morning, I'm okay. And forget that the underpinning power of all of that is coming from God. We can look like those in Isaiah 17.10, where it says, We have forgotten the God of our salvation and have not remembered the rock of our refuge. And then we start to feel pretty independent. We start to really think we are. That we're, we're able to sustain this without that connection to God. Oh, we still have a connection to God. We, we're, we're pretty sure of that. But it, it almost feels put on. And if you don't think this is a problem of today, try setting aside time in the middle of your day to pray or get other uh, believers at your workplace, workplace to, to pray with you. At the same time, once a week. Watch how the, the pressure of life, the pressure of work, makes that 15 or 30 minutes feel burdensome, unnecessary, or inefficient. I, I worked at Christian Light for about 15 years, and in the years I was there, it was a pretty small number of years that we, man we, we tried multiple times to have a prayer group that got together once a week over lunch break. And of those 15 years, it's a pretty small number of years that we were consistently able to make it happen. Because, well, life got in the way. The author, John Piper, says, when we don't want to stop working and pray, we are drunk with American productivity. We're utterly dependent on God, but the very blessings he gives us from day to day are often the things that can start to lead us into thinking, we're making it our, okay on our own. The fact that God gives me health, I can then start looking to that health as the thing that's keeping me going from day to day instead of looking at God, the one who's giving me the health. Let's consider a couple verses that speak to our physical dependence on God. In Genesis 2.7, it says, The Lord formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. We know that the source of all physical life is God. You, you trace the chain all the way back and it ends, ends, it begins at God. So we need to have 
the reality, we need to have the view of reality like Job, who said, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things, and before Jesus Christ who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. The sight of God who gives life to all things. How about this? Choose to sleep tonight. Oh, you can choose to go to bed. You can choose to close your eyes. You can choose to put on whatever white noise you need to, to help you. You can take an Ambien, whatever it is. But you cannot just lie there in bed and choose, I will sleep now. I sometimes wish I could, but I can't. Or choose to wake up tomorrow. I'm not talking about set an alarm. I'm talking about just choose to wake up from sleep. You can't. You are utterly dependent on God for one of our most basic needs every day. Every day we come to this need to sleep and then the need to wake up. You cannot choose to do that. You can build structures to help promote it and make it happen. And when it comes down to it, it is simply the power of God that will make you go to sleep and the power of God that will wake you again. Something like that could be something that wakes you in the morning. But God is the one who brings the, the life to you, that actually brings you out of sleep. Even, even if you're an atheist or an agnostic, you will have to admit that you're not in full control of yourself in just little things like that, that, that are just out of your control. So the most you could do is act independent of God, but you will never actually be independent of him. And the danger of acting independent of him is you'll have nowhere to turn when you come to the point you're faced with that reality that you're not independent. Now let's move past the physical dependence on God. We have a problem. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So what do we do? In Romans 10, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. That phrase, submitted to the righteousness of God, um, that, that can, can almost haunt me. We are dependent on God to have the righteousness needed to have fellowship with him. We're, we're dependent on God to simply have the righteousness necessary to have a relationship with him. Uh, Isaiah 64, 6 says our independent attempts at righteousness are revolting. They're disgusting. But we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags we all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. That's the picture of our independent attempts at righteousness. Paul in Philippians 3.9 says that he doesn't have his own righteousness, but true righteousness comes from God. The very essence of what we need to have fellowship with God, he has to supply. We, are, we, we aren't able to, to generate that ourselves. God seeks those that aren't even seeking him. In Isaiah 65, verses 1 and 2, 
I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I have stretched out my hands all the day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way that is not good according to their own thoughts. God is seeking the people who are not even bothering to look for him. He still is, is there trying to pull them in. Do you remember those days? You weren't even asking God to come convict you, and yet here he came and clump, you felt it. Then some verses that we looked at last night from Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Not of yourselves. We are dependent on God for everything. We're dependent on God for our very breath. We are dependent on God to be able to be redeemed to him. We're dependent on God to have true righteousness. And if we think ourselves independent from God, we are doomed to find ourselves further and further from true life. Like the children of Israel will find ourselves living in houses we did not build and thinking, I have done great things, instead of realizing God has done and is doing great things. When we have an independent mindset, we may even start thinking our filthy rags might just bridge the gap between us and God instead of letting him work in us and produce truly righteous actions. Last evening, we, we looked at grace quite a bit. Sometimes we, we act like grace is that extra something needed to bridge the gap between our best and God's excellence. So, you know, my best can get me up to here, but God's excellence is way up here. So I need his grace to fill in that gap. That is not an accurate view of grace. And yet we can, we can tend to fall into that, that, that grace is just what's needed to get from, from the best I can reach to, to get up to what God, where, where he is and his excellence. Grace is what even gets us off the floor and into the picture. We are utterly dependent on God. We won't really dig into this concept, but the one thing to think about is why did God create? If, if you go back to Genesis and look at why God created and, and the, the emptiness he indicates after he created everything but humanity, we see a picture of God creating mankind for the purpose of having fellowship. The, he, he, he wanted fellowship. He wanted someone to relate to. And so if we think to our created purpose and, and how the very existence of the human race is for a reason that is, is counter to aloneness, counter to independence. The very reason we exist is for connection to God, first of all, and also to each other. Let's consider a little bit the idea of independence when it comes to the church. I think probably the first things many think of if, if you're coming to a church service and the preacher says the title is Dangers of an Independent Spirit, and you think, well, we're going to talk about how we need to get along together and, and not be our own people. Um, let's start with a base about what the church is. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 
Oh, I am torn between reading the whole thing or or taking it in in chunks of verses. We'll we'll just kind of go through and 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 look at, at a number of verses. If we have time at the end, maybe we'll, we'll read it in one one connected string. Verses four and five talk about. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. Differences, diversities. There are a variety of distinct services, spiritual gifts. Um, we, we are not indistinct. Um, so when I say we're not independent, I'm not saying there aren't distinct things about us. There are diversities, there are differences, but all under the same controller, the same master, the same authority. The same Lord, the same Spirit, it says. In verse 6, there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. So there are differences in effects and working, but the same God is working in each. And in verse 7, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. I love the word manifestation. Um, it's to, to be expressed, to be shown, to be seen. We each have the Spirit revealed in us. We each have the Spirit working in us, but we aren't the sole beneficiary. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. The purpose of the Spirit working in me is for the good of you. The purpose of the Spirit working in you is for the good of me. The Spirit, the, the, the work of the Spirit doesn't just affect my life, it affects your life. And the work of the Spirit in your life doesn't just affect your life, it affects my life. The Spirit works and the benefit is, is collective and cumulative. In the next few verses, Paul gets into some specific gifts. We, we won't really get into that this evening. I'll just say, I do, I do think part of loving God with all our strength, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, Loving the Lord with all your strength in, in that greatest commandment. Um, uh, one of the ways we do that is to be using physical strengths and, and gifts and spiritual gifts to spiritual service and for the good of Christ's kingdom. So your ability to... I, I don't know where your, where your strengths are as individuals. Um, but if, if you have, you have a... a good ability to write, sew, bake, uh, sing, timber a tree, fix an engine, wire a house, uh, mud drywall. If, if you're just a little better at some things than other things, and of course your, your humility will make it hard for you to admit the things you know you're kind of good at, but you know there are things that you do better than other things. Those strengths in your life, they better not just stay as as, as simply physical, but you'd better be using them to spiritual impact, to eternal good. Those are part of the strengths that you get to use for God. To love God with all your strength includes the things you're good at, use them to the good of God and his people and, and his church and, and to, the to the glory of his name. Verse 11, one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. That one spirit, God's Holy Spirit, he distributes these abilities, these gifts, individually. They're custom made for you. These are not off-the-rack um, abilities. God doesn't just have a shelf of one-size-fits-most abilities and spiritual gifts that he hands out to you. He has 
tailored your gifts and your abilities to you. The same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. God has purpose-built your life for impact in his kingdom. Not by some whimsy, not because it would be interesting to see someone who can do that well, but according to his will, it says. Verse 12, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. In Romans 12, verse 4, Paul says, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same functions. We are members of one body. Now, I'm not a member of the same congregation as most of you, and I don't even know that everybody sitting in these benches is a member of the same church. In, you know, the what names are written on what roles. Um, do not ever forget that we are members of one body. We are part of a body. We are not the whole or entire by ourselves. We are part of something bigger. Verse 13, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Whatever allegiances, whatever affiliations, even identities you had, when you came to God and committed your, you, you, you committed to him above all else, uh, when you publicized that commitment through baptism, you laid down all those allegiances, affiliations, and joined one body by one spirit, this verse says. We were baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, whatever, whatever allegiances I had, I had to lay those down to come to God and take on that, that new allegiance. Now, lest anyone freak out about the, that identity comment. I don't believe we lose all distinct identity as Christians. Um, after all, he, he uses the illustration of a body. Um, you may be the brain, and, and one of you may even be the cerebral cortex, and I may be a hand or a foot or a spleen or whatever. We have, we have distinction about us. We have distinct identities. But our, our allegiance and our affiliations, we lay down what we've built up to be who we are. And we are baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether whatever, whatever you can put in there. We've been baptized into one body. And within the Trinity, we even see distinct identities in the, the three persons of the Godhead. Um, but that identity is still secondary to the greater identity. The same in the body. The identity of the body of Christ is, is overarching. So we see unity here, not independence. We have been made to drink in one spirit. Verse 14, for in fact the body is not one member but many. A body by nature is a complex and diverse thing. We're not talking about a single-celled organism. Um, almost anything we think of as a thing is actually made up of a collection of other things. Um, you may think of your, your car as a thing. Well, a car is made up of a whole lot of other things. And even once you start breaking it down, well, actually, a car is, you have the greenhouse, the part you actually sit in, and then you've got the axles, tires, wheels, engine, transmission. That's what a car is made of. 
well, ever cracked open an engine or a transmission, all sorts of parts are gonna start falling out. Anything you think of as, as a thing is actually always a collection of things that make up that new thing. That, that's, what I, that's what I'm envisioning when I see the body of Christ. It is the body of Christ, it is one thing, and yet it has so many distinct pieces. That's us. When we look at a body, a body that starts losing bits is, is handicapped, and sometimes even crippled. The loss of a single part doesn't necessarily spell instant disaster. But it does make things harder. So even if you think, well, I'm just in, you know, I'm a, I'm a member of the body, but I'm, I'm obviously not, you know, a high-functioning organ in this body. Um, God must be, God must have me as a toe or a finger or whatever. I think of a man um, I knew years ago who, he, he worked as a mechanic, and when he was younger, he lost, he was left-handed. He had lost his left pointer finger in an accident. So he only had his thumb and his, his other three fingers on his left hand, and he was left-handed. And he said most of the time he forgot he was missing a finger till you know, a child noticed or something, and oh, wow, that's interesting. But there were times in his work where he just couldn't do things with his, with his dominant hand that he normally would because he needed that finger there. Uh, he talked about he could never unscrew the speedometer cable of a car with his left hand, even though he would naturally reach in behind the dashboard and, oh, I, I can't get the grip I need with the fingers I have left. When, when the body takes a loss of a member like that, when, when we lose a precious part of the body of Christ, you know, maybe most days we can feel okay, but there's still going to be an impact. It, it's still going to have an effect on us. When you were born again, you who are born again are a member of the body of Christ, and this is not an abstract thing. And I'm afraid it's, it's something that too often in my life is just an abstract concept to me. I'm a Christian, therefore I'm a member of the body of Christ. Move on. But, but there's, a, there's, a real, there's a realness to it that I think we miss to the detriment of ourselves and to the body as a whole. If, if you look at the next chapter in, um, in the Bible here, you have the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter gets read at weddings, etc. You know, this is, this is the chapter that just really uh, pours love out. We see, though, that the actions of, of these members are, are interactions. It's, it's a practical relating to each other. It's all about... How do I want to say this? It's... Let me say this first. You could be listening to this and then say, well, does a person have to be a member of a local church to be a Christian? Obviously, there are folks who aren't a member of a local church who are Christians. But it's also obvious that a New Testament follower of God should be. Because how are you going to act out the love laid out in 1 Corinthians 13 if, you, if, if you're independent and there's nobody to love? How are you going to do that? How are you actually going to be a member of the body when there's an organ transplant and they put a spleen on ice to transport it by helicopter from the donor to the person who needs it. If it stays on ice too long, it, it, it's done for. 
How, how will you as, as a part of the body exist long term without the support of the body? How, how, can, you, how can you live out all these gifts that are talked about in, in chapter 12 or, or the ways we love in chapter 13 if there's nobody around to love? Like I said, obviously there are people that circumstances don't allow them to be in a, in a body. I think of a family from our church who, who's serving in the mission field in Peru. Um, the, especially with the pandemic and the, the restrictions in Peru. Long term, unless things change about a body coming together there, they won't be able to be, they won't be, able to be healthy there. Um, we need each other. We are part of a body. We have it laid out in multiple places that a requirement for Christians is to be living in submission to each other. We build each other up. We edify each other. Um, Ephesians and Romans both speak quite a bit to that. And the only way to be in a, in a relationship where we build each other up and we're accountable it is to be submitting to each other is to be joined together. And, and I just consider that and how this chapter says, I'm giving gifts and the spirit for the benefit, the, the joint benefit of my brothers and sisters. And then, and then chapter 13 is all about how I act out my love in a practical way with these people. Then do I need a verse that says, thou shalt join a local gathering of believers? To understand that God's expectation is for me to plug in and be a part of his body in a way that is real. That's not just abstract. It's real. It's practical. Not simply something that happens in my head and heart, but it actually affects my hands. Think of the two greatest commandments. We, we've looked at those a couple times this week in the various messages. Mark 12, 28. Then one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, speaking of Jesus, asked him, which is the greatest commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. When we look at the rest of the teaching in the New Testament, how much of it is dedicated to how we relate to and how we interact with each other as fellow believers. You even have Paul in an earlier letter to the Corinthian church, um, earlier in the same letter to the Corinthian church, chapter 5, explaining there are ways to relate differently to the member who lives in unrepentant sin. There's, there's one huge danger probably the biggest danger of an independent in relation to the church right there. The inaccurate belief that your relationship with God is just a vertical relationship, just about you and God. You cannot read the New Testament and think that unless, unless you're, you're willing to be what Peter calls willfully ignorant. You cannot read, for example, 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and say, well, my relationship to God is just between me and him. Well, why did he write all this about then how I, how I love you? I can't be independent, even though sometimes I really want to be. I just want to go back into my corner and, and sit down with my book and you people be you and me be me. This says I'm supposed to love you people. And is it, um, Paul somewhere says I'm not even allowed to do it grudgingly. Uh, I've got to love you people and I've got to love loving you people. 
that's, that's not independent. Let's think a little more about this body. Verses 15 and 16 of, of 1 Corinthians 12. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? My body doesn't get to determine what is part of it. That was determined by the Creator. Think of the ridiculousness of that for a moment. Paul's laying out a ridiculous idea here. The foot considers its toes and says, what's the use of these little foot fingers? I don't have opposable joints like the hand does. I'm just kind of useless. So it shuts down and just starts to separate from the body. Well, we think that's nonsense. That's not how it works. But we act like that in the body, the church sometimes. That person is so useful, and I'm, Peter is so useful, and I'm just kind of a useless bump on a log over here. I'm just going to, I'm just going to pull back. I'm not really going to try. Um, that's not how a body works. The foot doesn't get to say, well, I'm not nearly as useful as the hand, so I'm just going to let gangrene set in and see if I can drop off of this body. That's not how a body works. And yet too often we can do that. We look around at the other, the other pieces of the body. Maybe sometimes we say, well, I'm not like that person. And they're obviously, they're obviously just, you know, such a, such a joy to people. And I'm not like them. So I'm just going to shut up and try to act like them. You don't, the foot doesn't say, well, I get to act like a hand. You take the role. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? I thank God that you're not all like me. I thank God that you're all not like John Swartz. Ooh, can you imagine a church like that? Or all like Peter. Oof, can you imagine a church like that? So, no, you don't try to pull away and be separate from the body or try to become like the person next to you. Or, no. You don't try to become the person next to you. There are times we learn from each other. Um, and, and when you see someone living, living for God and you say, that would be beneficial in my life, yes, you can do that. But you never try to say, well, I'm, that guy's obviously useful. I'm just going to be like him. Uh, be your part of the body. I said, thank God you're not all like me or like John Swartz, or like Peter. Um, and, and that is heartfelt gratitude that y'all aren't all that way. But for the record, I'm also glad that you're not all my polar opposites, or all John's polar opposites, or all Peter's polar opposites. Um, and, and we'll never have complete opposites within the church, because as we all become more like Christ, there's a lot of commonality that does come in that. Verse 18, but now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. His pleasure is the purpose. He set up the body for his way. God has made the dependence, the joining, the togetherness as he knows best. So we're creationists. We believe an intelligent and loving God set up our physical bodies with purpose and care. He did the same in designing and creating the body, the church. We are not haphazard results of chaos, and neither is the church. She was designed, created with purpose for God's pleasure. Verses 19 and 20, And if they were all one member, 
where would the body be? But now, indeed, there are many members, yet one body. Again, the body is, by definition, put together of many parts. If you're a Christian, you're a part of the whole. You were made whole by the togetherness with God, and he's established that togetherness of the body here and now. Verse 21, And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Back in 15, 16, 17, those verses, we were looking at how sometimes we wish to pull away. We say, well, I'm not that useful, and I'm just going to kind of wither over here and, and fall away. The, those are struggles that can make us start shutting down or try separating ourselves. The, the previous section had more to do with the dangers of an independent spirit. But since we're here in this passage, let's, let's look a, a little bit at this facet of church life. Here we start to look at, at the other problem, where a, a body starts to re, trying to reject parts of itself. This isn't the hand saying, I'm not useful, I'm, I'm getting out of here. This is the rest of the body going, I don't like that hand, maybe I should get rid of it. Paul uses the hand and the eye, the head and the feet. He's, this seems to be a case of him pointing out things that seem disconnected. We don't really, we don't really think of, of a direct link or see a, an immediate link between these things. He, didn't, he doesn't use the example of the hand tells the fingers you're not useful, I'll get rid of you. This fits in a way we act. The person right beside me in practice, the person I'm close to, of course I'm dependent on him. We need each other. We're interdependent. If I'm fingers and you're a hand, of course we see each other's usefulness and the ways we need each other. But come on, what use is that toe, really? It doesn't even have an opposable joint in it. It's not the ones who are mostly like us that fit in nicely with our features that we struggle to see the value in. It's just because we don't experience someone's value in the same way does not determine their value to the body. We don't, we don't struggle to be independent from the people we like and who are like us and think like us and agree with us. Those people, oh yeah, we're not independent, we're interdependent, we need each other. The people we struggle to, to where we start to have these independent drives is where, well, Peter and I just really don't see eye to eye on more than 10% of things anyway. And so, do we really need each other? I don't know what percentage we actually see eye to eye on, but it's probably more than 10%. I'm sure it's more than 10%. But the temptation toward independence comes when there's conflict and difference. Not with the people you like, the people you get along with, the people that cheer you up. Yeah. Obviously, you don't think you need independence from them. The temptation toward independence comes when there is conflict and difference, which is why Paul wrote those letters in Romans 14 and 15 and 1 Corinthians 9 about how when we have differences and disagreements among us as believers, we're supposed to pull apart and just become independent from each other. No. He wrote those passages about how we work together, we submit, we build each other up, and we stay together even when... We think the other is pretty much dead wrong on this one thing. Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't, have any, doesn't give us any quarter for indulging that temptation toward independence when there's conflict and difference.
Jumping down to verse 25 here, 1 Corinthians 12. There should be no schism in the body, that the members should have the same care for one another. Here we have the interdependence term that I've been throwing around some. We cannot afford a division, a coming apart in the body, because you will be in some way handicapped. Maybe even die in some cases. The body could be grievously wounded when you start losing body parts. If you think about it, a wound to your arm is not localized to the arm. The impact, the, the, the impact is at body level. If you were to get um, stabbed or shot in your left arm, it's not like your, the rest of your body is just like, ah, that's the arm's problem. Your, your blood cells are kicking into high gear. Your, your brain, you've got adrenaline pumping. You, you've got a lot going on that is affecting your whole body just because there was a wound in your one extremity. Verse 26, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. As part of the body, there is nothing that doesn't affect more broadly. And the benefit of one is to the good of the body. The suffering of one is not alone. In verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and members individually. We are diverse, but we are united. Paul closes the passage by saying, He's now going to show a more excellent way. And then talking about how service, um, how we serve each other is useless without love. Have you considered love needs an object? Love needs an object. The independent-minded person can only love themselves. Everything in, in the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, leaves no room for independence, for aloneness, because it's all about how we act in love toward each other. We don't, don't really have time to get into it. <clears throat> Another danger of independence is how we trust our own perspective. And I'm sorry, but we all have a limited perspective. We all have a very limited perspective. And if you trust your perspective alone, you're going to be wrong in some things. Not everything. But you're going to be wrong in some things if you trust only your perspective. You don't have the experiences and perspectives to offer me. I mean, excuse me. You have experiences and perspectives to offer me that I need. And I won't get if I just pull away and be independent. Moving on at the human level. I, I just want to touch on this right before we close. Thinking about the dangers of giving in to independence. A, a solitude, and not a solitude, an isolation, um, a pulling away to be alone. And the dangers in that, consider the human aspect of that for a moment. You're generally considered sane because you're well put together. It's, it's in your psyche, it's in your head. That, that's generally how, how we would think of whether someone is sane or not, is, well, are they generally well put together? in the way they relate, the way they act, etc. You outsource a large portion of your sanity because, frankly, it's just really complicated. Um, not being crazy is kind of complicated. So what you do is your parents raise you to be vaguely acceptable to other people. Um, you, you get too weird and they knock you back on track. Um, then... You're surrounded by other people your whole life. And every time you go off the rails a little bit, 
maybe just a little bit, the people around you signal to you. Um, so I, I'm going a little long here, and so I can start to pick up some signals that, hey, it's time to wrap this up. Uh, you start telling a joke, and nobody laughs. You start to realize, I should probably work on my sense of humor a little bit. You have, you're outsourcing some of your sanity in that moment where you don't, you, you don't know where the boundaries are and you're just kind of outsourcing it. You're throwing it out there a little bit, you're testing the edges and people are shoving you back toward where you need to be. If you're civilized enough that people don't shun you and you have people around you, they're always going to be telling you how to not be too insane. If you are alone, you will drift and you'll drift and you'll drift and you'll drift in the direction of your biggest weakness. Without other people there, and I'm talking right now at just a purely human level, if, if this was not happening in a church and we were just talking to a group of people from, from atheist to Christian to Hindu to Buddhist to Muslim, the truth of it stands that if you just allow yourself to... To be independent and not have that influence of other people. God created us relational. If you don't have that influence of other people, you will just drift toward your biggest weakness because nobody's going to be there to nudge you back away from it. Some people are more introverted, etc. Some people, it seems like we're just not cut out for a lot of social contact. But we are social creatures at the very core. We are designed to connect and be connected. Even in the world at large, God has created us in a way that we are not truly independent creatures. Let's not forget that we were created, we are created by God to be connected, not alone. Connected to him, connected to each other, and even when we find ourselves apart if you're a Christian, you're going to find yourself apart from different groups of people because you just aren't driven by the same things they are. Even when you find yourself apart, it's never to be alone. You are still designed by God to be connected to him and to fellow believers.